Hello. Hello. My name's Caitlin. And my name's Alex, and this is Cryptid Queens. The mini-sode. The mini-sode. Today, we're going to be talking more about Vermont and the local legends and cryptids that are a part of that state. Mm-hmm. And we're excited to take you on this journey. We have a few stories, and they're very interesting, I think. I mean, I guess you want to just get right into it? What is there to, to say? I don't fucking know. <sighs> the days keep coming, and they don't stop coming. <laughs> and I guess that's there's not a whole lot to update people with, I don't think. No, not really. Nothing's really changed. I... I've been building a dresser all day from Ikea, and I want to die. But other than that, yeah, that's about it. All right. Well, then let's jump right in. All right, let's <laughs> jump, jump right the fuck in. Deep in. Okay. First, we're going to be talking about Emily's Bridge. And this is in Stowe, Vermont. Okay. So while Stowe may best be known for its skiing and for the Trap Family Lodge, the town has a spooky claim to fame as well. The Covered Gold Brook Bridge, better known as Emily's Bridge. Emily is said to be a broken-hearted woman who haunts this bridge. The legends all kind of vary slightly, but they all involve her being jilted by a lover that she was going to marry. And one story ends with driving a fast-moving carriage off the rocky bank and, and dying in the brook <laughs> below. And another more common story says that Emily hung herself... By the Ooh. rafters of the bridge. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So it's that classic, like, It's like spooky. a covered bridge. It is cute and quaint, but I wouldn't <laughs> want to cross it, like, at night no. on foot or anything like that. That's no, creepy. it definitely looks like the location of some paranormal shit. <laughs> so here's some of the paranormal activity that visitors have experienced on that bridge. So there have been scratch marks on cars and people have reported feelings of being scratched or grabbed as they're going through the bridge. And sounds resembling footsteps or ropes or even screams have been reported. Ooh, ropes. Yeah. Wow, that's that's creepy. The sound of ropes. Like, that's yeah. very specific. Yeah. And unsettling. Yeah. And apparently the more hostile manifestations have been aimed at men who cross the bridge. So maybe mm. that goes back to her, like, Issues with her jilted ex. People have also reported full body apparitions of Emily. Wow. Um, with most of the activity occurring in the hours immediately after midnight. And whether or not the story of Emily is the real cause of this bizarre activity at Goldbrook Bridge, paranormal investigators believe something supernatural occurs there. Cool. Super cool. Yeah. That's such a perfect little um, local ghost story. I love it. Okay, so what I'm covering is the Hartford Railroad disaster. It was a frigid negative 15 degrees Fahrenheit on February 5th, 1887, as the Boston-Montreal Express train pulled out of the White River Junction at 2.10 a.m. It crossed the White River on the West Hartford Bridge when the train started to sway and the back carriage swung off the bridge. After the train fell off the tracks and tumbled to the river below, it caught fire and burned down the bridge along with the train. The disaster killed 37 people and injured 50. After the crash, a nearby barn became a makeshift trauma unit where some of the injured survivors died. 
The barn still stands and passerbys have heard crying come from there. The area where the bridge stood has been known to emit the smell of burning wood. Some see a ghostly manifestation of Conductor Sturtevant believed to be patrolling the bridge to prevent another accident. Others see the ghost of a young child in 19th century clothing hovering above the river, staring where the crash occurred. Why are children ghosts way scarier than grown-up ghosts? I don't know. I think maybe it just comes back to their innocence. I think it's a little more devastating when a kid dies because they didn't get to live a lot of years at all. That actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Any type of life. Right, right. Yeah, so like, and also they're so innocent that like seeing them as a paranormal entity is probably just really off-putting. Yeah. yeah. I know for sure I would be terrified if I <laughs> saw a baby ghost anywhere. A baby ghost. A little ghostarito. <laughs> Ghostitos. <laughs> The next one is the University of Vermont. It's actually pretty haunted, apparently. Yeah, those buildings look fucking crazy. It is pretty old, so I do see how that could be the case. So I'm going to get right into it. The University of Vermont, better known as UVM, is not only the largest higher education institution in Vermont, it also has more haunted buildings than anywhere else in the state. UVM has bought many former homes in the city and turned them into campus buildings. One such building is the Counseling Center, and people have reported seeing there the ghost of Captain John Nabb, the house's former owner. Nab causes havoc by knocking over buckets and slamming doors and windows. The nearby public relations building was once owned by someone named John E. Booth, and some think that he makes banging sounds around the building and speaks when no one else is around. One of the most haunted buildings on campus is the Bittersweet House. And I wonder if there's a... So Fish, the band, as you all know, we're obsessed... The band has a song called Bittersweet Motel, mm-hmm. and they went to UVM. Well, they went to Goddard, but they, they were around UVM a whole bunch. But anyways, long story short, there was a song called Bittersweet Motel, and I wonder if that's a nod to this that building on campus. That was my first thought, too, and that's why I wanted you to read this one, because I was going to see if you noticed that as well. Yeah, but I, I noticed it. I mean, it very well could be. Anyway, so in the Bittersweet House, which may or may not be the inspiration for the fish song Bittersweet Motel, multiple people have reported seeing full-body apparitions there, and the ghost is believed to be Margaret Smith, who lived a solitary life in the house after becoming widowed at a young age until her death there in 1961. Some have seen in detail a woman with neat hair and a long dress. Other people have claimed to see a blurry version of the same woman. Perhaps one of the most tragic stories on campus is in the residence hall called Converse. In 1920, a young medical student named Henry committed suicide there, and students have experienced losing items and unexplained movement of doors and windows in that residence hall. Next, I'm going to do the frozen people. and I don't even know what to make of this. (laughs) So first appearing in a diary that was published in the late 1800s, The legend of the hibernating old people recounts the tale of a poor family outside of Montpellier who couldn't afford to feed and clothe the oldest members of their family during the wintertime, so they froze the people and buried them. What? (laughs) According to the tale, when spring rolled around, the elders thawed out and were just fine. So they weren't dead? No. 
That's not how that works. They put them in cryosleep, like in Star Wars. That's not fucking real, though. <laughs> you can't just put Grandma in the f- front yard <sighs> and bury her there until spring. <laughs> so the following is from a story by Wesley S. Griswold from Mischiefs in the Mountains. January 7th. I went on the mountain today and witnessed what to me was a horrible sight. It seems that the dwellers there who are unable either from age or other reasons to contribute to the support of their families are disposed of in the winter months in a manner that will shock the one who reads this diary. I will describe what I saw. Six persons, four men and two women, one of the men a cripple about 30 years old, the other five past the age of usefulness. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Lay on the earthy floor <laughs> of the cabin, drugged into insensibility while members of their families were gathered about in apparent indifference. In a short time, the unconscious bodies were inspected by several old people who said, they are ready. What? (laughs) They were then stripped of all of their clothing except a single garment. Then the bodies were carried outside and laid on logs exposed to the bitter cold mountain air. The operation having been delayed several days for suitable weather. Jared Carini. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It was night when the bodies were carried out and the full moon occasionally obscured by flying clouds shone on their upturned ghastly faces. And a horrible fascination kept me by the bodies as long as I could endure the severe cold. Soon the noses, ears, and fingers began to turn white. Then the limbs and face assumed a tallow look. What's tallow? Gaunt, and the fat is removed from your face, and, like, you're skinnier than normal, and... I could stand the cold no longer and went inside, where I found the friends in cheerful conversation. In about an hour, I went out and looked at the bodies. They were fast freezing. I could not shut out the sight of those freezing bodies outside, neither could I bear to be in darkness. But I piled on the wood in the cavernous fireplace and seated on a shingle block, past the dreary night terror-stricken by the horrible sights I had witnessed. We shall want our men to plant our corn next spring, said a youngish-looking woman, the wife of one of the frozen men, and if you want to see them resuscitated, you come here about the 10th of next May. Wow! (laughs) That's crazy! And it works? (laughs) That can't work. That can't work. In 1970, they were doing this shit? I don't know. I think um, maybe they were reading a passage from a book from 1970, but maybe it was like a compilation of passages from diaries and stuff like that. Because that doesn't sound like someone talking from the 1970s either. Yeah. (laughs) Vermont locals, please weigh in on this. I need to know what the fuck is happening here. Is this a wide no- like widely known thing in Vermont? I don't know. Good question. I'm going to have to ask Kara. She went to UVM. She might know. Oh, yeah. Okay. So my next one is a little bit longer, but not super long. This is the Brattleboro Retreat Tower in Brattleboro, Vermont. So formerly known as the Vermont Asylum for the Insane, the Brattleboro Retreat is still a treatment center for mental health patients. It was founded in 1834, and it's located just north of downtown Brattleboro, and the retreat is situated on approximately 300 acres of land along the Retreat Meadows Inlet of the West River. Beautiful. Yeah, it sounds like a nice place. Founded in 1834, the retreat was the first facility for the care of the mentally ill in Vermont and one of the first 10 private psychiatric hospitals in the U.S., 
It is considered a pioneer in the field of mental health care in the United States. That's crazy, because that was only in 1834. Like, that wasn't that long ago. Well, back then, they would just be like, well, he's the town crazy, and then do nothing. Yep. But and even then, like, in the 1800s, they would just put people away, and that was it. Right. Or, like, you'd go to, you'd just get slammed into jail, or you'd get shunned out of town, and that kind yeah. of stuff. It's pretty upsetting. But, yeah, not a whole lot of mental health treatment centers before no. then. So today there are 58 buildings on a sprawling 1,000 acres, um, but only 20 of the buildings are modern, and the remainder were built between 1838 and 1938. Taking its inspiration from the York Retreat in England, the facility originated as a humane alternative to the otherwise demeaning and sometimes dangerous treatment of people with mental disorders. There was a focus on moral treatment, with an idea derived from a Quaker concept introduced by William Tuke in the 18th century, which approaches mental disorders as diseases and not as character flaws or the result of sins. Hmm. And this remains the institution's guiding philosophy to this day. That's cool. In the 19th and 20th century, most of the treatment methods emphasize fresh air, physical activity, educational enrichment, therapeutic farm and kitchen work, and supportive staff. Some of the techniques used at the retreat were influenced by the Quakers and Benjamin Rush, who was a physician that was like popular during the American Revolutionary War. And the first superintendent of the facility was called was named William Rockwell, and he was instrumental in putting many of these ideas in place. One abandoned and closed off building, the retreat tower, was built between 1887 and 1892, and it was built by the patients. Oh, wow. So that was like a part of their treatment was to do work on the grounds because they thought like, oh, if you do work and contribute, it'll help you feel better about yourself. And I guess that could help. Now we know that that's a little bit outdated, but at the time they thought it was a good thing. So the history of the tower and its construction, while well-intentioned, is not really a happy tale. So in 1887, some doctors at the asylum believed that hard physical labor could help patients regain their mental stability. And while work is good for the soul, spirit, and mind, it must have been intense, back-breaking labor to erect this tower constructed of smooth, rounded, and shaped granite blocks at the top of a steep wooded hill. So I'm just picturing people having to sand down these big blocks of granite and carry them up this giant hill and then stack them and seal them and all that stuff. And like, that sounds not awful fun (laughs) to me. Yeah. Another reason for constructing the tower was to provide the patients of the asylum, a beautiful view of the sprawling, you know, retreat campus and the Connecticut river Valley and mountains beyond. Unfortunately, the tower was closed shortly after it opened due to what several sources claim Large numbers of patients committing suicide by throwing themselves off the tower and onto the cliffs and woods below. Jeez. So there was a photographer named J.D. Jessop, and he visited the site in 2018 and wrote on his blog, Again, standing at the base of the tower with my hand against the smooth granite wall on the edge of the small cliff, I had a strange feeling that I can only describe as sadness, emptiness, and loss. It was, however, amazing to me, the skilled stonework and craftsmanship that were required to erect this epic monument on the brow of this wooded hill. The tower itself is made of dark-colored granite boulders of various size with large chunks of white quartz smoothed and pieced together just so. 
The deviations from this pattern in the construction are the fine white granite blocks that make the cap teeth of the tower, making it visible from a distance, and the same white granite blocks ring the ancient iron doors. Wow. The tower, yeah, so it's like a really beautiful construction. Yeah. The tower has been closed for over 100 years, and access is only allowed a few times a year when the retreat opens it up for people to climb, and they have to have like a guide take them up there. This tower is supposedly one of the most haunted places in all of Vermont, and some people have reported seeing a ghostly figure cast itself off the top of the tower and then disappear before hitting the cliffs below. Oh my god. So, people have had this vision of ghosties. I just looked up the photos of this Mm -hmm. tower. It's gorgeous. It definitely sticks right up out of the trees and probably has a really beautiful view, but... God damn, that thing is crazy looking. Yeah, definitely looks haunted (laughs) to Uh me. Uh And then, so Jessop continued in his writing. I then arrived at the Brattleboro Retreat (laughs) Cemetery. I was overcome by another strange melancholy feeling as I walked past the graves. It is best described as an ever-repeating scream that echoes into the cold, empty woods that no one will ever hear, acknowledge, or answer. Wow. Heart hurt, forgotten, and abandonment are other emotions that came to mind. Some of the headstones are standing. Others are knocked over, but the keepers have done their best to preserve these by enclosing them with wooden frames. Some of the inscriptions are legible, some are worn off, forever forgotten, seemingly until an interested party discovered an old book in one of the storage buildings at the Brattleboro facility entitled The Old Burying Ground. In this book are the logged names of 700 souls who died while at the retreat and were subsequently interred. What is striking and tragic is the fact that there may be only a hundred headstones in this cemetery, which leads one to believe that there may be hundreds of bodies lying in unmarked graves here, gone and truly forgotten. So that's the story of the Brattleboro Asylum. Do you follow that woman on Instagram called Lady Tofos? Lady Tofos? No, I don't think so. She posts videos of her cleaning gravestones. (gasps) It's really cool. Oh. My Virgo self is obsessed <laughs> with this idea. Yeah. This it's... is the perfect thing for someone that has a Virgo sun and a Scorpio moon. Yeah. It's just made for me. I know, because it's cool and like kind of macabre and dark. Mm-hmm. But then she's just like cleaning them. I love it. I know. Lady Taphos. So T-A-P-H-O-S. She does such a good job restoring them. Yeah. And then she, if she can, she finds the story of the person who died and writes the description in the description. (laughs) It's really wholesome. I was just thinking when you were talking about the cemetery keepers, I was like, oh, I want to be a cemetery keeper. (laughs) Dude, okay, last week I like got this fucking hair up my ass and I was like, I'm going to look up how get into mortuary science. Yeah. And it's not hard. It's an associate's degree. Oh, shit. Yeah. I've looked up um, how to become a medical examiner. Oh, for but, crime scene? Yeah, but you need to have a PhD. <laughs> like, yeah, and, <laughs> and a fucking steel stomach as well. Yeah. Like, I'm not great with blood, but yeah, I think I I'd be a it. great funeral director. Yeah, like, no, for sure. When we're old and both of our husbands die, 
we're going to be funeral directors. That's going to be together. Us. Yes, we'll open a, a mortuary together, and you could do the embalming part, <laughs> and I'll do the business admin stuff and talking to the families and being like, "I'm so sorry for your loss." That's perfect because I'd rather hang out with dead people anyway. Yeah, and I want to like <laughs> give hugs to the living and give their families a nice send off and. Why am I like this? <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with us, but uh, there's others like us. Definitely. So. Anyway, do you want me to do the last? Yes, part? I'm excited for this one. This one is locally pretty famous. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm covering the legend of Champy. Champ or Champy is the name of a lake monster said to live in Lake Champlain, a 125 mm-hmm. mile long body of freshwater shared by New York and Vermont with a portion extending into Quebec, Canada. So just to give you some perspective, Tahoe is like 40 miles long. Okay. And so this, this is, is a big 25 miles long. Yeah. So over the years, there have been over 300 reported sightings of Champy or Champ. Wow. Yeah. The original story is related to Iroquois legends of giant snakes whom the Mohawk named Onyarkoa. French cartographer Samuel de Champlain the founder of Quebec and the lake's namesake is often claimed to be the first European to have sighted Champ in 1609. Wow. Yeah. This, a long this, time ago. This monster's got history. Yeah. An 1819 report in the Plattsburgh Republican entitled Cape and Serpent on Lake Champlain reports a Captain Crumb sighting an enormous serpentine monster. Crumb estimated the monster to have been about 187 feet long and approximately 200 yards away from him. Despite the great distance, he claimed to have witnessed it being followed by two large sturgeon and a billfish and was able to see that it had three teeth and eyes the color of peeled onions. Whoa. (laughs) Okay. He also described the monster as having a belt of red along its neck and a white star on his forehead. Oh. Yeah. That's cute. It is cute. That's a look. That reminds me of like Puff the Magic Dragon. Oh, I love Puff the Magic Dragon. <laughs> my, my mom used to sing that song to me all the time. In 1883, Sheriff Nathan H. Mooney claimed that he had seen a water serpent about 20 rods, the equivalent of 110 yards in length, from oh, where wow. yeah, from where he was on the shore. He claimed that he was so close that he could see round white spots inside its mouth. Uh, Mooney's sighting led to many more alleged eyewitnesses coming forward with their own accounts of Champ. In 1977, Sandra Manzi took a photograph while on vacation with her family that appears to show something sticking out of the lake. The entire bay of the lake where the photograph reportedly was taken is no deeper than 14 feet. According to Joe Nickel, it is unlikely that a giant creature could swim, let alone hide in such shallow water. It has been suggested that the object in the photograph could possibly be a rising tree trunk or log. Champ reportedly can be seen in a video taken by a fisherman, Dick Affalter, and his stepson, Peak Baudette, in the summer of 2005. And close examination of the images may be interpreted either as a head and a neck of a of a plesiosaur-like animal, and even an open mouth in one frame and a closed mouth in another, or as a fish or eel. (laughs) Okay. 
Yeah. So it's got options. Yeah. So <laughs> although two retired FBI forensic image analysts who reviewed the tape said it appeared authentic and unmanipulated, one of them added that there's no place in there that I can actually see an animal or any other object on the surface. Hmm. Yeah. So one piece of evidence, though, not a sighting per se, is the recording of sounds from within the lake by the Fauna Communications Research Institute in 2003. Whoa. They were working as part of a Discovery Channel program, and the group described the sounds as being similar to those produced by beluga whales or dolphins, neither of which are known to live in Lake Champlain. So based upon appearance and mysterious alligator-like tracks, quote, found near Lake Champlain, cryptozoologist Katie Elizabeth and Dennis Hall suggested in 2016 that Champ could be a member of the family Crocodilia, crocodiles. Researcher Scott Martis explains that the tracks were likely the tracks of a large snapping turtle and also mentions the long-nosed gar or the lake sturgeon as more probable candidates for Champ. Sturgeon are pretty fucking crazy looking. Must say. Wow. Yeah. The Champ legend has become a revenue generating attraction and it creates a lot of tourism. For example, the village of Port Henry, New York has erected a giant model of Champ and holds Champ Day on the first Saturday of every August. Aww. Awesome. So cute. <laughs> They've kind of embraced it just like they embrace like the Mothman. Yeah, I, I love how many towns have their lake monster story and like. Mm-hmm. I just no. dropped a photo of the champ statue in the drive. It's kind of creepy, but I like it's it. It's super creepy <laughs> and very trippy. It looks like something that you would see in like a weird Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole trippy sequence. Definitely. That's it. That's Vermont. Thank you <laughs> for this Thank wonderful you. time. Please check the bio if you'd like to get merch. Yes, please, please like and subscribe and give us some stars on the reviews. We would really appreciate that. And, you know, go out there this week with your head held high, your feet on the ground. Take a deep breath. It's all going to be okay. You are not a cryptid. You don't have to hide yourself away from the world. You're allowed to show up as big and as bright as you possibly can. Show up for yourself. Yeah. I hope you have a week that's not too spooky, but just spooky enough. And keep your eyes peeled, queens. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. <laughs>